Good morning, everybody. Well, it's always a joy to be able to spend a Sunday morning with you. The elders had a retreat uh, yesterday, and so usually when they do that, I get an opportunity to be here with you. Uh, We're still in the first part of the year, as you know, and if you haven't heard this phrase already, um, you're going to hear it now. Nothing changes if nothing changes. Think about your life. Think about your relationships. Think about your walk in the Lord, which is our emphasis. Your spiritual health. Nothing changes if nothing changes. I heard a cute little example of this and some of you so there's people here that have uh, that work in dairy farming and there's a lot of farmers here and uh listen to this one what good is it if you buy a cow that produces two gallons of milk or two buckets of milk and keeps kicking one over now you either got to move the bucket Get a different cow or something. But nothing changes if nothing changes. That applies to marriage. It applies to the workplace in all avenues of life. Since it is also said, in life you get what you tolerate, okay, In life, you get what you tolerate. How's it going to be different in 2023? I have a lot of people that, you know, through the years come to me uh, for counseling as a pastor, and they tell me their story, and I said, I say, like, wow. So what are you going to do? Oh, I came because I thought you had the answers. (laughs) And I said, my answer is, what are you going to do? Well, that's my question. Vince Lombardi, I thought this was an appropriate illustration, in that it's a big day for football fans, and I'm not going to share my personal bias. You'll You'll get my point in a minute. Vince Lombardi, who was the Green Bay Packers, said to his 38 men who were very good ball players in the first day of their training for the new year, gentlemen, he held up a football and he said, gentlemen, this is a football. Now, the reason he did that was because in their previous season in the championship, they were ahead in that particular game, and they lost, and it was a heart-crushing loss. So he thought, we have to get back to the fundamentals of football. We have to get back to the ABCs and basics of football. When he did that, 
and said, we're starting all over. We're talking in detail of what a championship team will look like. They went on to win five NFL championships in seven years. And he never coached a team with a losing season after that. We are no different. The Bible says we can change. And if we get back to the basics of our faith, all things are possible through him who has loved us. Now that's really good news. Because this March, it will be three years since our country was riddled with tremendous losses. Tremendous. Economically. Relationally. A global research company did a study. This is an international study about the impact of the pandemic. And I'm tired of talking about it, but I'm just trying to make a point. 57% rise in anxiety over the last three years internationally. 57% rise in anxiety. Now the book of James focuses the believer, the Christian, on getting back to the basics of their faith. It's a book that highlights how to behave like we believe. Behaving like we believe. Now, interestingly enough, James is written, or James was the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you know that? Jesus, did you know that Jesus had eh, three or four siblings, maybe four, three more brothers and a, a sister, somewhere in there? But James was the Lord Jesus's little brother. And interestingly enough about James, he did not believe, and some of us could probably relate to him, I mean, would you believe your Older brother was the son of God? Can you imagine two brothers hunting for a deer? And the older or the younger brother gets a deer, kills a deer. And the older brother says, I have some things to share with you. I created that deer. And if I didn't allow you to kill it, you couldn't have even done that. They'd be rolling down the hill tussling, I'm sure. This is James' older brother, and he was a skeptic of his brother. As far as his brother's claims went. I mean, he saw the miracles that Jesus himself did. But that still wasn't enough for him. He did not bow his knee and his heart to the Lord Jesus 
until after the resurrection. But until that time, James was very resistant of his brother's claims. He was very strong-willed. You had to prove it to him. I have a feeling there's people in this room that are kind of that way too. Don't just tell me something that you think is right because you feel that it's right. Prove it to me. And so James was a bottom line author too. Bottom line. He doesn't mince any words. He gets right to the point. How many people in this room right now do not mince words? Would you raise your hand, please? Oh, there's got to be more than that. Do not mince words. Bottom line, writers. Bottom line, communicators. If you want a book that gets to the point in the New Testament, read James. But you might want to duck because he will not yet let you and I down easy. We're going to talk about his style this morning. He's bottom line communicator. Like his message is, if you truly have given your life to who was once my elder brother, more important than that, the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, you better back up your confession with your behavior. Nothing else is acceptable for the Christian that does not do that. It's not about what we say, according to James. It's about what we do. And of course, he was faithful until the end. Actually, after the resurrection, I'm going to say about 30 years after the resurrection, he became the leading apostle among all the apostles and actually was martyred. This one skeptic who resisted the claims of his brother is so convinced now that his brother was Jesus as Lord. He's taken up to the top of a temple, thrown off, and beat to death with clubs. That's our friend, James. Now, James was concerned, I think, to a degree, when he wrote this particular letter to the saints, that they were becoming disoriented in their faith, much like many of us have been in the last three years. We haven't lost our faith, but pretty confused for many about why God would allow certain things. I think he was concerned because they were becoming disoriented in their faith. And he saw that they were starting to take on cultural norms in terms of their behavior. They started acting like someone who had never met Christ. Christians don't have that luxury. Nobody's perfect, we all know that, but. It was becoming difficult for people to separate, like, who's a believer, who's not in this particular culture. And so James gets very, very concerned about this. 
And he writes this letter to them. Uh, look at verse 1, first of all. Chapter 1, verse 1. Now look at how his heart has changed, by the way. From being the skeptic. Like, show me and I'll believe. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I serve him. By the way, have you found that, that people who generally are kind of, um, you know, not sure and they keep debating with you about your claims of Christ and how the Bible can be true when it says this and they're just so resistant and they just need more data, that kind of person. Have you noticed that when they come to Christ, they make some of the strongest believers? Have you noticed that? That's what James was. That's James. Very, very strong. And he says he writes this letter, this is a letter, that he wants all of the churches to read out loud. To the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. And so the Jews were scattered and dispersed all over the known ancient world at that time many of which were, were scattered because of uh, Roman persecution. Their country was also crumbling, scattered, disoriented. And so he writes this letter. Now jump to chapter 3. And um, James is going to emphasize something that he felt he needed to emphasize excuse me, chapter 4, verse 13. And that had to do with them um, forgetting or weakening on the divine truth that God was sovereign and in control of everything that happened in their life. they were starting to buy into the cultural standards and question if the Lord was really in control. Not only of the planet, but of their lives individually. There's a lot of people that were self-made. A lot of people that were highly ambitious and smart and driven. But they were believers. And they were having a hard time giving up the control of their life completely. Now, you know that when you came to Christ, you were down, riding down the highway of your life in your own car. But when you bowed your knee to Christ, he got behind the wheel. Did you know that? you and I were too reckless. We didn't know where we were going anyway. He got behind the wheel and we scooted over to the passenger seat. Did you know that? He said, I didn't really know that because I'm used to being in control. Matter of fact, little sidebar that I've learned as a pastoral counselor through the years. Children who were raised in homes, were, they had no control and is completely chaotic. 
completely dysfunctional and chaotic, spend the rest of their lives trying to stay in control of everything. Now, you would understand why that is. But if you're serving Christ, that doesn't work. So the sooner, sooner we learn to give up control, the better off we, build. We, we will be. Okay, look at verse 13. This is the group that James is talking to. Verse 13. He says, come now, you who say, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a city and town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. He says, for those of you that think that way, live that way, and function that way. Strong-willed. Sometimes, and he's writing actually to merchants, Jewish merchants, that were very strong in travel, very strong in trade. And at that time in a no world, all these different cities are being built up from the ground and older cities are being restored. And the merchants, Jewish merchants, saw this as an opportunity to make the big dollars. Just like when people came over here to California and Oregon to find gold. This is the time to make money. But I think James felt that they were kind of getting away from the importance of what the Lord wanted for their life versus what they wanted to control in their life. Now you got to know that, that James is not saying it's not Christian to make a profit. He's not saying it's not Christian to make plans for your future. He's just saying that should never overpower God's providence and will for your life. That's all he's saying. So if you took business classes and you were taught, no, it's essential if you're going to be a successful businesswoman or businessman, you, you set a goal and then you take measurable steps to attain that goal. That's all good. But James is saying, if you really behave you like you believe, you always filter your future through the power and the will of God, period. And then he gives some reasons later. Look at, the, look at verse 14. Well, I'll say it again. Verse 13. Today or tomorrow, you who say, will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. You don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. He gives two very, very, very good reasons why we shouldn't make strong future in the concrete plans without running it by the Lord. Number one, you and I don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't even know who's going to win the game today. (laughs) 
I remember when my kids were little, we lived in Eureka, and it was some kind of parade, and I, and I remember that the end of the parade was about six blocks down, and my kids kept asking for, you know, are there, the horses going to come out? Are they going to do this, going to do that? And I kept looking about six blocks down, and I thought, you know what? I have no idea. I can only see six blocks. I can't see what's around the bend. We cannot even see around the bend, and we make plans as if they're set. That's what they were doing. But they were all about making profit, future, money things like that. He says, number one, it's foolish to not be flexible and keep your hands open before the Lord because you don't even know what's going to happen. That's the first reason he gave them. Well, my, my, my son, Michael, who's 38 now, was 16. I said to him, I said, hey, son, um, he graduated when he was 17 and a half, so he had about a year and a half to graduate. And I said, hey, son, what are you going to do when you graduate? Oh, he said, Dad, me and my friends, we're going to go live on a beach in San Diego. I said, awesome. I want to live on a beach in San Diego, in San Diego. That's awesome, son. I said, what are you going to do for money? And he goes, money? I said, "Uh uh-huh. Yeah. We know about as much as he did at 16 about what we're going to do in the future. The second reason that James gives, once again, to the point, not a lot of fluff here. Our life, compared to eternity... Our life is like a puff of smoke. Our life is like a vapor. I'm told that tonight or early tomorrow morning, 16 degrees. So go outside and blow your breath into the air and count how long you can see it. That's our life. It's just the breath and the vapor. So he says, you know, I mean, come on. He says, I want you believers to change your perspective. Do not get caught up with the model that it's all about you or you're going to build some empire that you're going to benefit from. I remember a pastor in the Bay Area, my senior pastor, he used to say, you know, as far as your career or as far as things or as far as all of your attainments in life don't hold them so tightly but live before the lord hands open palms up for the lord gives and the lord takes away it is a lot more stressful to hang on to things tightly should the Lord decide to take them away. I know a sister in Christ who lived in a beautiful home and due to some unforeseen circumstances, lost her home. She told me, I will never 
get that attached to a home ever again. It hurts more when we hold things tightly, amen. So we live lives like this. Lord, we're flexible. We hope you're in our plan. I'll share in a little bit how we can kind of know how the Lord clarifies his will in a little bit, but these people had detailed plans. You know, the theme of the Old Testament, and it goes over and over and over, you see this theme, that everybody did what was right in their own eyes. But when we come to Christ, we don't do what's right in our own eyes. We wait on him. We step out. But we trust him for the outcome. You ever hear this phrase, if you really want to make God smile, tell him all the details and plans you have for your life? Proverbs 16.9 reads, the heart, this is, this is another way of saying what I'm trying to say. The heart of a man plans. God forbid if we don't use the skill and the brain and the common sense he's given us. That's called stupidity and laziness. But we throw it through his providential purpose. Proverbs 69. The heart of a man plans, but the Lord determines his steps. The Lord does. He signs off. He has to sign off. Or it won't work out according to plan. And you've probably heard this phrase before. If you insist, if you're an insistent person and, and you have this thought like frequently, nobody's telling me what to do. No, he's telling me what to do. I was told when I came to this area, southern Oregon, from the Bay Area, which is a, a great step up, that people have come to rural southern Oregon because they don't want tell anybody telling them what to do or what to believe or what to vote or what to wata. And so they actually told me, I don't think you understand, but you've moved to a no, but nobody's telling me what to do area. I go, really? Well, I hope that's not your mantra of Christ as your Lord and Savior. Because he's the only one that should be telling you what to do. So he says, what is your life? Uh, turn to a passage real quick. Uh, look at Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. Now, a lot of the quotes in the book of James, he got from his brother and his Lord Jesus. He got it from Jesus. He also has a couple of good verses that you see reflected in the book of Proverbs as well, book of wisdom. Uh, look at uh, verse 13. Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Um, someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Oh, there's another whole subject, right? About future. Oh, we, we got some band music going here? What do we got going here? Yeah. 
Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance. By the way, I just have to say this real quick. I was teaching on a Wednesday night recently, and I was asking some questions to the audience, and all of a sudden, Alexa said, I don't know that one. (laughs) I couldn't believe it. I said, Alexa, are you in this room right now? I said, Alexa, I thought you knew everything. I don't, never had that done in a sermon before. Verse 14. But he said to him, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care. Jesus said, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. They're all going to come to dust. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is the one, Jesus says who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. James is telling his readers, be rich towards God and trust him with your future. Verse 15, he tells them this is how you should think. We hear people say, if it's the Lord's will, we'll do this or that. But, but it's more about how we think and the value we have in life as believers. Look at verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, and in other words, instead of saying, you who say you're going to do this and you're going to do that, and you got control of your whole future in life and your business, instead of saying that, You ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Now, God is not a puppeteer. God, as I said earlier, wants us to be prayerfully motivated to make great decisions. If our hands are open. If it's the Lord's will, we will do this or that. You got some challenges ahead of you or decisions you need to make. Got to run them through this grid. I want you to turn to one more passage and then we'll come back. Acts 16. Acts 16, verse 6. The Apostle Paul is about to venture out on a missionary journey. 
He has three friends with him. He has Timothy, John, Mark, and Barnabas. Four of them are going to strike out on a missionary journey. Paul is certain, relatively certain, that these new regions he's going to go to are where God wants him to go to. But he was wrong. He was wrong. Just like you and I have been certain in the past of exactly what God wanted to do, wanted us to go, wanted us to buy. But we were wrong. We reserve the right to be wrong. That's why we need to trust him. Look at this. Verse 6, there's four of them now, four men. Paul's leading this party. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So they were sure that they were to go into this particular region because it hadn't heard the gospel yet. And the Holy Spirit checked them, closed the door, and wouldn't let them go any further. Which reminds me of a phrase that Chuck Swindoll says concerning God's will. If it's of the Father, excuse me, if it's of the flesh, if it's of you and I, if it's of the flesh, it's forced. If it's of the Father, it flows. We don't ever have to kick down doors to make things happen. Ever. And many times, it doesn't even matter who you know. It's our sovereign Lord that's taken the will of our life. So the Holy Spirit closed the door on them. Let me read on. And when they had come up to Mysia, so they attempted to go somewhere else. They attempted to go into Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go there either. The great apostle. I know this is the direction God's leading us. The Lord closes the door twice. So what he does, he's going, I'm just going to wait and pray now. Let's continue on. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. You've got to be careful of those dreams in the middle of the night. We know that the Lord can do it. Obviously, he does it here. I've often said if you eat pizza too late in the evening, you might have all kinds of visions, and it's not from the Lord. The Lord appeared to Paul. Let's see what happens. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. That was across, I believe, the Aegean Sea. It was miles from where they were. But they were right on the coast waiting and praying. And then they, he got a vision that night and they just hopped on a boat and they went right across the water. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding, these four men concluded that God had called them to preach the gospel there. So they lived and they thought within the will of God. 
And when they got a check, like, I'm not feeling right about this. Or the doors are closed twice in a row. They pulled back and they said, we need to wait on God and pray. And the next morning, all four of them concluded that it was the Lord that was leading them in a different direction. That's the mindset. And I'm not talking about events. I'm talking about a mindset and a submission from our inner life, which we'll get sometimes and sometimes not get it, to what the Lord wants for us. Anything less than that is reckless. And he's very capable when the time comes to make his will clear. Very capable of doing that. Verse 16 of James, yes. Yeah, sorry, let's go back to James. <laughs> verse 16, verse 15, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Verse 16 as it is, this is where he gets direct, like almost confrontational and sarcastic. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. It's the arrogance of what we can do. The self-made spirit. Our expertise. Our name. It's that kind of arrogance. As it is, you boast in your arrogance all such boasting, now this is strong, is evil. It's evil. Why is it evil? Because when we boast about our accomplishments and our investments and our plans and what we're going to do, we're actually sitting on the throne of our own life and we've dethroned God. Because ultimately, we don't have the say. We belong to him to the degree. Did you know in Corinthians, Paul even said our bodies belong to the Lord Jesus. Did you know that? Our physical bodies belong to to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says, you never want to engage them in immorality. They're to be used wholly in that way for the Lord. And so James says, come on. Our life began in Christ. It continues to live in Christ. It ends in Christ here. Give him the glory and the ownership that he so deserves. And then he says, all such boasting is evil. I said that. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. In other words, if you know what the word says, and the word says, plan, be smart, Invest wisely, work hard, 
be the best Christian employer, by, uh, by the way, that your employees have ever seen. That's biblical too. Very biblical. May they never have doubt as to the strength of your faith as a Christian, ever. So if we know that we have to run everything through the Lord or wait on the Lord, to just take it in our own hands and run as fast as we can in the wrong direction because it's something we want to do. That's called sin. That's what James says. Man, he's pretty straight, isn't he? Okay, I want to give you some uh, um, closing tips on, well, how do we know what God's will is in our life? How does he generally reveal that we're going in the right direction? Four things. Number one, through his word. The most um, satisfying, fulfilling, probably convincing way to know the Lord is leading you in direction is he'll speak to your heart through his word. Like I'm doing now, you can hear a song on the radio that has a, a verse that you love. You could be worried about money, be anxious about lack of funds, and all of a sudden you hear someone on the radio quoting Jesus, do not be worried about things or money. Consider the birds of the air and the flowers of the field. It's kind of just an inner knowing that God's talking to you. You're not going to see a lightning bolt. You may not hear anything audible. In most cases, you won't. But it's an inner knowing. God, how did he know? How did he know that's what I needed to hear today? That's the word of God. On the other hand, if you're about to venture out, you think it's God's will, and you get like, major warnings and verses and other Christians quoting scripture like, uh, I wouldn't do it. You'd be a fool if you keep going. The second way is look to the Holy Spirit's nudging or check in your heart. So usually when the Lord is in it, it's the Lord's will. We're saying if the Lord wills it, we'll do it. If it's the Lord's will, you're going to have a sense of peace or rightness about it. And that doesn't mean that you won't have some fear sometimes or nervousness. But under that is a strong, anchored peace that I'm with you. I'm with you. Now, if you have a decision to make and you don't have a hard no, but it seems okay, I would proceed and guess what? If the Lord is in that, he won't let you. This should give you peace for those of you not wanting to make the wrong decision. If you say to the Lord, Lord, I am at your bidding. I'll do whatever you want. I'll do whatever. you got to help me. But I'll do whatever you want. If that's your heart before the Lord and you're not sure if you go right or left, go the direction you feel comfortable with. And if it's a wrong decision, He'll stop you. You've got to be able to trust that. He'll stop you. He doesn't play games with us. He doesn't lead us astray ever. 
So look to the Holy Spirit's nudging or checks. We'll know if it's not right. Jenny and I were talking about something the other day, and we both just had it like, ah, no, that's not right. We both had a check. We're not going to do that. Thirdly, look around at circumstances. So is the door open in front of you? Or is it shut? Like I said earlier, you don't have to kick down any doors when it comes to God's will. If anything, this is amazing, if you walk in front of the door of his will, it opens before you. You don't even need to open it. It's that natural. It's that natural. So are the circumstances warranted? Or are the circumstances, if you make a choice to go in a particular circumstance, are you violating the scripture in another kind of way? Because God doesn't talk out of both sides of his mouth. And then lastly, look to godly counsel of believers that you trust who you know have your best interest at heart. You don't go to your buddies or your friends of the past who want nothing to do with Christ. You don't go and ask for wisdom from them. You go to the people that love God, not mock God, that love the Lord and have your best interests at heart. And if you get a consensus that, yes, this is the way you go, then you go. Now, in conclusion... Our ultimate example of how to do this. How to be humble, dependent on the Lord for our provision in life, sensitive to what he wants over what we want. If we're going to do this, we have to look at the ultimate example in our Lord Jesus. Because while he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, clawing at the dirt, sweating so much out of anxiety and stress of what he was going to face, that his sweat were as drops of blood. By the way, it doesn't say that he sweat drops of blood, if you want to be very clear. It was sweat that was as profuse as drops of blood. He was crying out. Disciples watched him go three times to pray. He had to wake him up every time he went back to him. Said, couldn't you pray with me for even one hour? And what did he say? He said, Father, you know what? I think we can pray this way too. Someone we want really bad. Something we want really bad. Something we need really bad. Something we don't want to do. Something we have to do. And we have to do it soon. Father, I don't want to do this. If Jesus can say it, we can say it. If there is any possible way that you can break into my life right now, Lord Jesus, and take this cup of bitterness from me, or of pain, better said, from me, 
Would you please do it? Please. Nevertheless. Nevertheless. Our Lord and Savior showed us how to do what James is telling us. He showed us how to do it. Nevertheless, not my will. But thine be done. And moments after that, you could see torches coming off from a distance. The light bouncing off the tips of the spears of the Roman soldiers. As Judas, who he loved deeply, was getting ready to give him a kiss to betray him. And the rest is history. Father, not my will, but thine be done. No matter what it is. Lord, we love you today. Help us to be clear on what is supposed to be so natural, but difficult as believers. Some of us have ventured off on our own at times, and we regretted it, and you were so kind to graciously turn it for our good. I pray for anyone here today that is right on that line, right at the crossroads, They don't want to just do what they used to do. This time they want to weigh it out and they want to hear from you first. Speak to them in these matters. Very clearly we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.